Father, we thank you for all the ways that you have provided for us and blessed us and given us what we need in your word to understand uh, how you've worked in the world to get us to where we are today. And so as we continue to work through Acts and see how you worked in the early church, we pray that you'll give us insight into these uh, events and truths so that we can be better equipped and to know you better and ultimately to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we give all these things to you and ask all these things for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, last week we left off on page 30 in your notes. We're right in the middle of Acts 5. And uh, from Acts 3, the end of Acts 3, all the way to chapter 7, this, uh, this early episode that we have in Acts focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem in the early church. And one of the major themes and one of the threads that we've been tracing through is related to the fact that the early church, they are going to face pressures from the outside with the religious establishment, particularly the religious leaders within Jerusalem, but they're also going to have problems on the inside. And so last week we left off where, um, first of all, let me just take it back a little bit further. Uh, Peter and John healed a man who was born lame and doing so, preaching very boldly uh, the name of Jesus, that Jesus was the name and the power by which they had done that. Uh, the religious leaders got really upset with them, told them to shut up. Y'all shouldn't be talking about them uh, anymore like that. That's going to get amped up more today. Uh, we're going to see that one of the threads that we trace through in that is that the apostles and disciples, they're warned by the leadership. Then they're going to be beaten by the leadership. We'll get into that today. And then ultimately the leadership is going to kill somebody at the end of it. So we get a sense of how serious these things are in, this, in these early chapters that focus in Jerusalem. In the meantime, as all that's going on, we have some problems that take place within the church itself. And we looked at one of the first ones uh, last week on page 30 with the episode of Ananias and Sapphira, where uh, a husband and wife, they conspire together uh, to lie about some land that they had sold to give to the apostles to distribute, to take care of those who have needs in the early church. And I want to I want to really emphasize something here that um, I didn't emphasize very hard last week, but on page 30, there in Acts 5, 1 through 11, um, after we find out that they've decided to keep a portion back, but tell the, you know, lie to the apostles about how much they had sold it for, uh, right there in 5, 3, second full paragraph from the top there, Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds from the field. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is this that you planned these things in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. The point was not that Ananias and Sapphira were going to keep part of the money back. The point is that they were lying to the apostles and to God about it, right? That's the main thing. And, you know, one of the things that, that the Holy Spirit is doing in the early churches, he's trying to knit them together to be of one heart and one mind. We read that in paragraph right before this uh, section here. So as the Holy Spirit's trying to knit them together, you can't have people in the midst of that that are lying and conniving and telling untruths. There's a famous scholar who um, one of his statements was, there is no unity in untruth. 
right? In other words, if you're trying to get people together on the same page, you can't be lying to them as you're doing that because the lies breed disunity, right? It, it doesn't uh, enforce oneness, coming together one heart and one mind. So that's the, that's the thing there. It's not that they... And it would have been fine if they had sold the land, apparently, and said, hey, Peter, we're, we're going to keep this for ourselves, but we're giving this to y'all. That, that's, that's what Peter's saying. It, it was yours to do whatever you wanted to do with it. Problem is, you lied about it, right? And that's the main issue. Harlan. I'm sure I'm reading into this, behind the lies, you give Ananias and Sapphira, some glory that they Yeah. To make them look better. Yeah, than what they are, and which is, again, deception within it. And, you know, and, and I find it uh, really interesting that uh, as we talked a little bit about last week, you know, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? You know, he is the father of lies and deception. I mean, this, this is the way he works. Uh, and, you know, all we have to do is open up our newspapers or wherever you get news, if you even call it that anymore, you know, uh, Wherever you get your biased representation of supposed reality, that's what I call it, you know, you got to realize that at the heart of that is lies and treachery because we are living in, un, still under the dominion of the evil one. This, this world still lies in his grasp to some extent. And so where you see fracture and disunity and untruth, you know, he's, his work is taking root in a very powerful way. And Peter and the apostles, they can't allow that in the early church because the Holy Spirit is trying to work very contrary to that. So I, I just want to make a big point about that because I had a question in one of the other classes about it. And, and I think it's really important to see that. Um, and as you know, um, both Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. Um, it, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting that Peter does not curse them Neither does it say God struck them dead or something like that. It's just like it happened and that's it. Now, we know that the Lord has probably taken them out of the equation uh, more than likely, but, but it doesn't say that directly. So, some people have, some scholars have even conjectured that through the shock of this, they just had a heart attack and fell dead. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't take away any divine providence in that. You know what I mean? Uh, but anyway, really weird story, really, really fascinating. But, but what's at issue is very significant for the early church. And you can see this in the, in the next summary statement. We'll pick up bottom of page 30, Acts 5, 12. A lot of this that we're about to get into, we're just going to read through uh, and make, make a few comments because this next uh, episode is fairly easy to trace through. It says... Um, 512, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. But, uh, and by common consent, they would all meet in Solomon's colonnade. But none of the rest dared to join them, but the people did praise them highly. And believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, crowds of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And in addition, a large group came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Uh, parallel, very similar to Jesus' ministry, right? Healing, preaching the gospel, bringing the people in. Um, and again, people are so enraptured by this that they're thinking if, if Peter just walks by and his shadow falls on them, Maybe that'll be enough, right? So really incredible times in terms of what's, what's happening here. Uh, 
an interesting textual problem, 5.13, where it says none of the rest dared to join them. Huge debate about who the rest are. Um, so uh, some, some people believe that they're saying that the apostles would meet by common consent in Solomon's colonnade and there they would teach. But the rest of the disciples, they didn't want to join in with them, right? Because of all the heat that's getting turned up and so forth. Uh, some people think that this is, um, that this is talking about uh, just, you know, common Jewish people there in the temple, that they wouldn't join in with them. But nevertheless, they still praised them highly. It's not clear what Luke intends uh, with that specifically. But what we do know is this. They're stirring up so much trouble that, you know, there are groups of people that are like, man, y'all are doing great work, but we're not going to get too close to this thing, right? And that's, that's going to be significant for what's about to take place here. Uh, five, seven, two, any questions or comments about that? Now, listen, y'all, I'm going to go. If there's something that I, I miss that you want to know about, y'all ask me, and I'll either tell you I know or don't know. So, yeah. Was the temple open for anybody to come any time of the day, or they didn't have services mm -hmm. like well, they had uh, the temple. The question was, could they come into the temple any time of the day or whatever? There were set uh, times of prayers and sacrifices at the temple. So you had a sequence of prayers. And remember earlier we talked about that even the early church was still devoting themselves to the prayers, which is probably a reference to the times of prayer that they had at the temple. And I don't remember all of them now, you know, 9, 12, 3, and so forth. And so the temple would function during the day. And uh, you could come up and make voluntary sacrifices anytime, um, you know, thank offerings, all the different types of things you could offer. There were specific times of prayer. So, yeah, the, the, the temple was swirling with people all during the day, just thousands and thousands of people. Now, on that handout, I gave you all a handout uh, of the temple. And I just wanted to that's something that I forgot to talk about uh, on this handout that I gave you all of the temple. Uh, down at the bottom, to give you some reference for the size of the whole temple mount, the whole temple complex, down at the bottom right, it's hard to talk about it backwards, down at the bottom right, uh, as, you're, as you're looking at it, you, you have an overview of the temple complex, and you can see uh, right to the side of it, there's a little black box, and that box says football field. So that's one football field in comparison to the size of the temple complex. It's huge. And those of you that have gone to Jerusalem, if you've ever taken the trip over and you've seen that where they, you know, they've kind of mapped out where the whole complex was, it's ginormous. So there will be thousands and thousands of people coming in, going out on a daily basis, you know, uh, all, all of which are Jews or, or proselytes that will be coming in to take part in the prayers or the worship. And, you know, uh, if you're wanting to, um, I mean, if you're wanting to hit the maximum amount of people, this is where you would go. You know, this is this is where you are, and that's what's fascinating about Jesus. Jesus starts his ministry in Jerusalem, spends a little bit of time at the temple, but 95% of his time he's in the backwaters of Galilee. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem, right? Which is really fascinating. He makes people come to see him. If you want to see me, you got to come out and find me out here. You know, right here by the lake or out here, wherever, you know, and, and, and part of it, uh, I think is, is that um, if Jesus were in Jerusalem, it would stir up too much trouble too quick. You know, there were several times where they tried to go and make him king by force and he would not allow that to happen. And so here now 
the apostles there centering in Jerusalem at this time, because if you want to have maximum impact, this is where you're going to have it. In Peter's first sermon, if you remember, 3,000 people came to faith. Second sermon, 5,000 men. It's, it mentions specifically. Now, just taking the numbers and not including women in the 5,000 potentially, you know, that's 8,000 people in a, in a city where the population is not the way we think of it today. You know, it's probably only several tens of thousands of people there. So these people that are coming to faith in Jesus represents a huge shift in the balance of power uh, for that area. What does this mean? If these people think Jesus has been raised from the dead, if they think he's Messiah and Lord, what's that going to mean for us as the leadership? And that's exactly what we're about to get into, uh, that whole controversy. So let's uh, pick up on page 31. Um, so Ananias and Sapphira have been taken out. The people are being healed. Peter, the other apostles, they're preaching. Right in the middle of page 31. Here we go. Acts 5, 17 through 42. Then the high priest took action. <laughs> so, uh, okay, this is, this is getting out of hand. This is just like that whole Jesus thing that we had earlier. Uh, he and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with uh, jealousy. That, that's a really good translation. Uh, so they arrested the apostles and they put them in the city jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple complex and tell the people all about this life. Uh, and so um, here the apostles are released by angelic intervention and they are, they are told again, you know, they're encouraged, go stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. I love that, right, about this life. Right. Jesus is offering people a whole new way of life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And so here uh, they're reminded that they're just preaching the same things that Jesus did. But now the apostles are adding on the crucifixion, resurrection and ascension of Jesus that gives meaning and gives fuller significance to all the other things that Jesus taught. But they're encouraged to go back and uh, teach the, the Sadducees. I'll just remind you that they're mentioned here. Uh, the party of the Sadducees, uh, they did not, they only, we talked about this last week, I think, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as being authoritatively inspired. And so that meant that they didn't uh, believe strongly in angels or demons or spiritual things. Uh, they did not believe in the Messiah and the coming of a Messiah, because you have, you have to get that from the prophets and the Psalms. Moses doesn't talk much about that. They didn't believe in a resurrection in general. Uh, there's some evidence to say that they didn't even believe in an afterlife, which I think, wow, y'all don't have how much to believe in. You know, I don't know why you'd want to be in that group. That's, you're going to die and that's it. It just comes to nothing there. You know, they're, they are. I mean, it's almost like they're atheistic in one sense, you know, um, but people are strange. You know, people are. <laughs> One of my uh, one of my best friends, he uh, he's a pastor down in North Mississippi. And he says, anytime I'm training uh, somebody for pastoral ministry or ministry within the church, he said, my first rule is that you got to learn before anything else is that people are crazy. <laughs> Once you start there, then you're going to be OK. Right. I mean, how can you believe in anything if you deny some of the you know critical Issues that are going on. But all, all of those things are, are things that, that the apostles are going to get crosswise with, with the, uh, with the Sadducees as we go here. Yes. Sadducees and Pharisees come on the scene. I mean, they've been around a really long time. 
Yeah, this is a huge, this is a great question. When did the Sadducees and Pharisees come on the scene? There is huge debate over when all that actually happened, but we know that they come in during the intertestamental period. And by the time you get to the first century, you know, by the time you get to AD one on, on our calendar, um, they were already fairly well established. And the, the Pharisees probably, now this is all conjecture, were probably part of the, um, the uh, zealots and a group called the Hasidim that if you remember when they came back into the land during the intertestamental period and they started rebuilding the temple, there was a group that was started by, um, uh, gosh, the guy that, re that read the law and rediscovered the law. He's got a book in the Bible. Uh, Ezra, thank you. Yeah, Ezra and that whole group, uh, you know, as, as they realized, oh, wait a minute, we went into captivity because we broke the law. Well, we need to make it our job to teach everybody the law. And so that's probably that group is where the Pharisees probably came from, because the Pharisees had a mindset that if we could if we could get all of Israel to attain the same ritual purity that's required of the priesthood. Well, then the Lord will send Messiah and so forth and so on. Uh, the Sadducees developed somewhere in there, too. And we know that they were from uh, wealthy, aristocratic type families. Uh, there's some evidence that they, you know, bribed their way into the priesthood. Um, there's some evidence that they were not descended from the priestly line, from Aaron through Zadok and all that kind of business. But they were more political manipulators, you know, and, and so forth. But, but there's a lot of questions about where those groups came from because there's just not a lot of records from that intertestamental period that discuss fully what's going on. Yeah, that's an excellent question. The same, same thing, yeah, yeah. The, the Sanhedrin, and it's, it's even debated on what the Sanhedrin actually was. Was it a, was it a council that oversaw uh, just the functioning of the temple or was it a larger, like, you know, um, uh, more of a national council that dealt with everything? Uh, in Acts, it seems like it was almost a mixture of both, but particularly things related to the religious life of Israel. It was they were the ones that oversaw it. And so, yeah, we're about to run into them here, too. And a lot of that is, you know, scholars debate and wonder about it. And we're not we're not for sure on all of it. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Yeah. When was the change when they went from temple to having just the well, the synagogues show up in the intertestamental period, too, because, you know, by the time we get into the New Testament, you know, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. We're going to have synagogues. In fact, we're going to run into a couple here uh, probably today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the, the synagogues probably developed during the exile when Israel was in Babylon because they, you know, the temple had been destroyed. And so the way they kept their community life together and as they met was in the synagogue, uh, the, the gathering together. And the word synagogue, it just means gathering together. You know, that's that's the that's that's what it that's the that's what the Greek term uh, means literally there. Uh, so. So, yeah. So the synagogue was where the Jewish community gathered together and figured out how do we stay faithful to God, even with the temple being destroyed and everything that we're dealing with. So that develops clearly during the intertestamental period, starting in Babylon. And, and we know that because there, in fact, today, we're going to see that there were different synagogues all over the place. And a lot of times the synagogues were organized by the language that the people spoke. We're going to see 
uh, the synagogue of the freedmen here in a little bit. And the names that are associated with that, they're all Greek. So these were probably Jews from the what we call the diaspora. If you remember when um, Israel went into exile into Babylon and then the Lord returned Israel to the land, you know, after the 70 years of the Babylonian exile, many of the Jews didn't go back to Israel. Many of them stayed in dispersion and that, that became known as the diaspora. Right? They're spread out all over the empire, particularly in uh, Asia Minor and, you know, down into northern, the northern part of the land, old Babylon, all that. So those Jews, they were Jewish in culture, but they spoke all different languages. And so you'd have different synagogues by language. You would have synagogues, sometimes by family, by geographic orientation. But there were places where, where the Jewish people could meet together and keep their cultural identity. You know, just like in Memphis today. You know, we, um, we were, I was talking to my daughter, you know, Memphis has a, a large Jewish population, you know, for the South. And, uh, you know, there are several major synagogues. And if you drive by on Saturday, you know, they'll be walking to synagogue. And that is a place where they kept their culture and, and tradition and meeting together. And, and uh, really fascinating. But all that develops during that Inter intertestamental period, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and then the synagogue, sometimes the synagogue could be in somebody's house, sometimes it could be a separate thing, you know, it's like everything else. I, I, I've, I've, I've actually thought about teaching, like maybe taking a semester and just teaching through the intertestamental period at some point, because, you know, that's something you never hear about, but bits and pieces, there's no book of the Bible, you know, it is literally, you know, we go, you go from Malachi, the last prophet, and you come to the first gospel, Mark, and you've got <laughs> all these people, all these groups. Where do they come from? You know, in the 500 years. And there's no inspired book that records what happens in that history. Everything that we know comes from extra biblical sources. And thankfully, there are, there are quite a few. Some of them are crazy. Some of them are out there. But, but there's, yeah, there's, there's some really interesting history there. That's how they learned the Torah. That's how they, yeah. They read it several times a day. They, uh, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, the, the synagogue was the place where you would hear Torah read out loud. Uh, some synagogues could afford to have, you know, the whole Old Testament, you know, the whole Hebrew scriptures. Some of them only had parts of it, you know, but it was the place where uh, they would read from, from the scriptures and then the rabbis would begin to interpret it. And that too is probably... Uh, the, the, the rabbis, we know, uh, they came through the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the ones that were teaching the law and interpreting the law. And they, they were the ones that started to collect their writings into their oral tradition. That shortly after the time of Jesus, it gets collected in something called the Mishnah, uh, which are the, the teachings. And then the Mishnah develops into the Talmuds, uh, if you've ever heard that word before. And those are all the collected teachings of rabbis going back to the intertestamental period. And there's, there's a lot of debate over when some of those teachings came in, but those are also very, very helpful in understanding how Judaism developed and so forth and so on, and particularly the tra traditions that come up. So, but bottom of page 31, um, Peter and the other apostles, they do exactly what the angel has told them to do. They've been released from prison, released from the jail. 521 says, now they entered the temple complex at daybreak and they began to teach. Uh, again, you know, the temple would begin sunrise. And so this is when everybody's starting to come in. Uh, when the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full senate of the sons of Israel. 
and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. Now, you, you can see there that this describes the Sanhedrin as the Senate or the, the uh, uh, um, governing body of the sons of Israel here. So here, Luke does seem to indicate that the Sanhedrin not only oversaw what was going on at the temple, but they had a larger uh, ruling function within Israel itself. Uh, and that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so they get everybody together, and they're going to send orders to the jail to have them brought in. 522, but when the temple police got there, they did not find them in the jail, and they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked and the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> Uh, as the commander of the temple police and the chief priest heard these things, they were baffled about them and uh, as to what could come of this. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. <laughs> <laughs> the very thing they told them not to do. Then the commander went with the temple police and brought them in without force because they were afraid that the people might stone them. Uh, one of the things that we saw in Luke last year, and now we're seeing moving forward in Acts, is that these leaders are always shown being afraid of the people. And the problem is they should be afraid of God. They should fear the Lord. But instead, they're more afraid of the people. And so their, their actions are motivated out of their fear of men rather than fear of what God is doing. And that's really about to show up in spades and what's going to happen here. 527, after they brought him in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked, uh, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. So see, now they're really getting it because every speech that Peter has given so far, he has pointed the finger both at the people and the leadership and said, listen, God has clearly demonstrated that this Jesus is Lord and Messiah, and y'all have had him murdered at the hands of ungodly men, right? Not backing away. And so now they're starting to get the message. Um, 529, right in, the, right in the middle of page 32. Now, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Earlier, when they had told him not to speak, uh, Peter had said that a little bit more Continuously in 419, it's at the bottom of page 27. Uh, 419, when they've told him to shut up, don't speak about the name of Jesus anymore. 419, it says, Now Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. But we are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard, right? In other words, Peter says, Listen, uh, you're going to have to figure out. Uh, if it's better for us to listen to y'all or to listen to God, but we're going to keep on preaching, right? And now he says it more clearly. We must obey God rather than men in 529. And then 530, uh, he just adds insult to injury. <laughs> the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. And God has exalted this man uh, to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That's a summary of everything that Peter has preached up to this point. Right. Um, God has raised up Jesus. You had him murdered by hanging on a tree. Uh, really interesting. If you remember, um, those of you that went through Luke, 
one, one of the questions that, that used to come up, and, and particularly in light of what's about to happen here, uh, in, in just a little bit, you're going to have Stephen come on the scene. And Stephen is going to preach against the Sanhedrin as well, against the leadership. And at the end of his speech, they get so mad, they just take him out of the city and stone him, kill him unceremoniously, right? And, and people used to ask the question, well, why didn't they just do that with Jesus? If they were so upset, why didn't they just take him out and stone him? And, and I, th I think Peter reveals, reveals, the, reveals the issue right here because he mentions something very specifically. You had him murdered. Notice he doesn't say by having him crucified. What does he say? By hanging him on a tree. And the reference there that Peter has in mind, and I'm sure that Jesus touched on this when he was talking about how he fulfilled things and how his sacrifice was related to things in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 21-23, in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21-23, uh, there is a passage there that talks about killing people, capital punishment. And in that passage, it says anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. To hang somebody on a tree, right? You have them killed and then you nail their body to a tree. Like you see that happen in the Old Testament several times. People are left hanging on trees or nailed to the walls of a city or something like that. Uh, the point is, is that that person is being shown that they're, they, they've clearly done something that brought the curse of God upon them, Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that the leaders wanted to have Jesus specifically crucified. Because how could the Messiah hang on a tree? Clearly, he's been cursed by God. Now, they hadn't read Isaiah 53 or had not taken that to heart. Because Isaiah 53 teaches that, yes, right, he would suffer for his people and the curse of God would be on him, but not for anything he had done, but for the sins of the people that he was dying for. Right. And so, Peter, I, I mean, this is just letting them have it. Right. Uh, right. They're saying, you know, uh, if we keep y'all, if we let y'all keep on preaching, you're going to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter's like, well, his blood is on you because you're the ones that killed him. You had him murdered. Right. He does not. I love Peter. He does not back down. Right. Remember, this is the Peter that denied Jesus three times. Just a few days earlier, you know. And now here he is. Shut up. We're not going to shut up. We're going to beat you. Go ahead and beat me. I don't care. We're going to kill you. Go ahead. I mean, what, 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 what's the worst that can happen? It's just awesome to see the way, you know, he's been completely transformed. Um, and then, of course, he, you know, he ties in everything that he talked about Jesus earlier. He's the, he's the ruler, savior. He's going to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so now you need to underline this. And so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also a witness to all of these things. And that's going to be really significant when we get to, to uh, Stephen's speech in a minute. And I hear another question or comment. Okay. Um, top page 33, they just, um, episode continues on. It says, now when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. Um, this Pharisee, he, he is fairly significant even in the rabbinical writings. He is mentioned several times uh, in terms of his influence. And one of the most significant things, at least for Acts, that we know again from some extra biblical resources is that he has a young disciple by the name of Saul. 
And he's about to enter the picture here in just a little bit. 535, he, uh, so Gamaliel, he gets up and he speaks. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're going to do to these men. Not long ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his partisans were dispersed and they came to nothing. And after this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. That man also perished and all his partisans were scattered. Uh, there's some debate about who those men are. Um, not exactly sure, but there is evidence that these types of insurrections took place. Both of the men that are mentioned, they are, um, they are apparently leading insurrections against Rome. You know, and, and there's some implication that people thought they might have been the Messiah or might have been the leader, you know, to lead Israel uh, to be free from the Roman oppression and whatnot. So he, he gives these two as an example. Look, they rose up, they had some people following them, and then it all went away. 538. And now I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And they were persuaded by him. Wow. Now that's some good advice, right? Listen, if God ain't behind this, let it go. It's going to die out, right? But if he's behind it, you're going to find yourself fighting against God himself. I think whatever's going on here, Gamaliel has seen enough at this point to say, you know, there really may be something going on here. And, you know, it's indicated that, uh, you know, when, when Thutis rose up, he had 400 men with him, right? Peter and these other guys, they've just brought 8,000 people. We got to be careful how we're dealing with this. This ain't no small thing that's happening here. Right? 540. Now, they called in the apostles and they had them flogged and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. I've often wondered if these, if these leaders have ever raised children because, you know, the minute you tell people not to do something, that's the very thing they're going to do, right? <laughs> and do it just despite you, if for nothing else. 541, uh, then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoice, ah, this is such a great statement, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. Right? They're rejoicing that they've just went through this process that would have been dishonorable, right? The thing that would, you know, getting, getting publicly flogged is showing that you're a person of no account. You're trying to undermine everything, right? You're undermining our culture, everything about it. Instead, uh, they are rejoicing that they <laughs> were counted worthy to be dis dishonored for Jesus' name's sake. 542, every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So that is, um, that is a kind of a, uh, you know, summing up this inner episode within this much larger episode that's going on. And what we're seeing now is that the pressure from the outside is being cranked up. Again, earlier they had warned them not to teach. Now they've beat them a little bit. But even within the council itself, uh, there is disagreement over what they should do with this movement. And those things are going to carry forward uh, in these next couple of episodes. And we'll, we're going to see how they actually play out here. Uh, anybody, any questions or comments on any of that? Anything I didn't, uh, that I didn't touch on that you might have questions about? All right. All right. Top of page 34. Look at that. Now we're moving today. Check it out. Making some progress. Uh, again, 
This is a short episode that shows that, you know, not everything is peachy keen on the inside of the church. Um, Acts 6, 1 through 7 says, Now in those days, as the numbers of the disciples was multiplying, so right, so people are just keep on, uh, are being added to the faith day by day by day. We've heard that uh, earlier. Uh, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, I think what this translation has here is, is good, but in the Greek text, it just says um, uh, there was, was a complaint by the Hellenist against the, Jew, against the Hebrews. And it's, it's really weird. The word Hebrew doesn't show up very much in the New Testament. Uh, but the idea here is, is that there's, uh, there's some crack here between the Hellenistic Jews and the, and the Hebraic Jews or the Hebrew speaking Jews. And uh, the Hellenistic Jews, those are Jews more than likely that have grown up in the dispersion that we were talking about earlier. And Greek is their primary language. Uh, if you were Jewish and you grew up in, you know, the land of Israel, uh, Aramaic would have been your primary language. And you would also probably have been conversant in Greek. Uh, and I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Uh, but you would have been conversant in Greek, but, you know, your primary language was going to be Aramaic. These other Jews, the Hellenistic ones, they probably speak Greek and they may not be very conversant in Aramaic. Because if they had grown up in the empire in Asia Minor or some of these other places that are going to be listed, they wouldn't have not have necessarily learned Aramaic. So there's a there's a uh, there's a linguistic divide here. And because of that, uh, the widows from those Greek-speaking Jews, they're over, being overlooked in the daily distribution. Uh, 6.2. So uh, the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Uh, in Greek, the, the word is almost literally something like serve tables. And it's not literally that, but the word in the context uh, would just mean to serve, right? So it's not right for us to give up preaching uh, about God to handle uh, serving, right? To, to serve these people that need service. That, that's not what we've been called to do. So six threes, therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. Now, they are about to appoint seven men just to oversee handing out daily supplies. And look at the qualifications, full of the spirit and wisdom. See that? That's, that is fairly significant, right? Um, <laughs> 6-4. Now, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. So the proposal, ple- uh, the, that's hard to say, the proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Those are all Jews, and the interesting thing is those are all Greek names, right? So as, as, as they choose the people to oversee this, they're, they're choosing people from the Hellenistic Jews, right? In other words, they're saying, hey, y'all have got this problem, y'all take care of it, right? And we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out who that is, but y'all, y'all that, that's a thing, so we're going we're gonna to put y'all in charge of solving the problem. Very different from the way government does it nowadays, right? Now we're going to 
elect a council that doesn't know anything about the people that we're serving and let them make decisions that are in complete ignorance. And right. Uh, the apostles are working with some wisdom here. Uh, so the seven men, they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, the laying on of hands is probably uh, a symbolic gest- gesture of, you know, that they're going to be doing this work under the authority of the apostles, right? We lay our hands on you to say, hey, we're, we're blessing what y'all are about to do. Uh, go and do it. Um, Six, seven, so the preaching about the word flourished and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. There we go. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and, and the priest would have been largely from the Sadducees, which is really interesting. Later, we're going to find out that, that fairly a significant number of Pharisees come to the faith later. But here, uh, a, a good number of the priests become obedient to the faith. So you can see that the movement is taking root uh, at every you know, social level within Jerusalem here. And that's really, really significant because uh, that's the work that God intended to do from the beginning. Right? We're going to save everybody from the lowest to the highest, to those who are close by to those who are far out. And so all of this is starting to happen right here in Jerusalem. Uh, and, you know, and it shows how the early church is given wisdom to know how to take care of some of these, you know, minor problems that they have going on in their midst. And notice that the qualifications are these are men who need to be full of the spirit and wisdom. You know, I, now, th- I mean, think about that for a minute. They, these people are just going to be managing something in order to do that. Well, they need to be overflowing with the spirit, spiritual people, you know. Yeah. We, you know, it's like they're they're using ways of thought that have almost disappeared from the modern church, you know? Uh, y'all don't even get me started on that. Uh, y'all know, but yes, absolutely. I, I often think about things like that. Uh, would I have been chosen to do that, you know? Uh, and you know, all of these, all of these stories are, are, are meant to do that, you know? Uh, one of the big ones is when you read in the Gospels, Jesus goes into Jerusalem, you know, on the Sunday before he's crucified, and they're all yelling, oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Four days later, they're all yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. Would I have been in that crowd yelling crucify? Probably, you know? I mean, it's really sobering when we put ourselves in these stories, you know? It will, yeah, it will. Oh, man. The Lord, uh, above all of the things, is seeking to grind away our own sense of pride and, you know, um, (laughs) that we got what it takes. We ain't got what it takes uh, <clears throat> unless we trust him. Right. And then he's able to do these things. And, and y'all now something I want to remind y'all of is, you know, we've been reading Peter, Peter's superhero, the beginning of this thing. But you got to remember where he started. Peter was a fisherman that had no qualification to do any of the things that the Lord has called him to do whatsoever. Right. In fact, all of the all of the 12 that Jesus picked were completely unqualified for what he called them to, right? But through his training, through the Holy Spirit, now they're turning the world upside down, right? Really, really incredible. And he denied him three times. And he denied him three times. Yeah. In that, ah, all right. <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're about to be introduced to this young dude named Saul, right? He's going to be throwing people in prison and agreeing to having people murdered. And Jesus is like, that's the guy I want to take my gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. That's my man right there, right? I mean, who in the world? Yeah. Because he 
he yeah. knew what he had done wrong. Absolutely. And now he had corrected his That's wrong. exactly right, yeah. Another thing that, that, that I seem to find in all of these key disciples is that these are all men of, of what I would call tenacious zeal. Whatever they're in, they get fired up about. And when they get fired up about, you, you, you can't get them pulled loose from it, right? Jesus can use somebody like that. We just may have to change some things, right? We just may have to amend some things going on. But I need people that, that have that zeal, you know, and that's that's what I see in most of these people that that, that are mentioned here. Uh, they're often headed in the wrong direction, but Jesus get a hold of you and <laughs> turn you inside out. Page thirty-five. Here we go. We're going to be introduced to Stephen. We're going to find out a little bit more about Stephen. Now, re remember, Stephen is not one of the twelve. He Stephen is not one of the twelve apostles, but it says something about him in six eight. That's really incredible. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. See that? Stephen, who's not one of the twelve, is also performing incredible works and signs among, among the people. Um, full of grace and power. Those two words are sometimes associated in Scripture. Uh, and, and both of them talk about God's enablement. Uh, you know, enabling us to do something that we can't do something in and of ourselves. And the grace part of it means that it comes to us freely. But the power of it means that it's 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 God's power freely given to us to do things that we couldn't do in and of ourselves. And th those two ideas often go hand in hand in Scripture. And we're going to see that a few more times in Acts 6, 9. It says now some uh, from what is called the Freedman Synagogue, composed of both uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia came forward and disputed with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Uh, Jesus had talked about this very thing in Luke 21, 15. Uh, you, do, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It's just a short snippet. Luke 21, 15. Jesus is talking about um, what's going to happen uh, after he ascends back into heaven. Also things related to the end of the age. And in... Um, this is actually Luke 21, 14 and 15. Uh, he's, Jesus says this to the disciples, uh, settle it in your minds not to mediate beforehand how to answer. That is when people come and arrest you, lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to uh, take you up to the synagogues. They're going to throw you in prison. You're going to go before kings and governors for my name's sake. So when they do that, he says, uh, this will be your opportunity to bear witness but settle it beforehand, not to meditate how you're going to answer. Now listen to this, verse 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict. Nevertheless, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers, relatives, friends. Some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will be lost. And by your endurance, you'll gain your lives. See, Jesus already prepares them for this. Persecution's coming, you know. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute y'all. And when you go and you're going to give witness before all these people, don't worry about what you're going to say. And I love what he says. I will give you the words where you're going to confound them. They won't even know what to do. And notice here, it's um, as they're trying to debate with Stephen, the spirit is giving him the wisdom that he needs. Because, of course, the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. 
who's been given to us to teach us the things of Jesus and so forth and so on. So, so here, Stephen is doing exactly what Jesus had foretold earlier. Uh, the Freedman's Synagogue, that is, people don't know for sure what that is. The fact that it's called the Freedman's Synagogue probably means that this is a group of, of uh, Hellenistic Jews, right? Greek-speaking Jews who were either enslaved or their uh, fathers had been enslaved. And it could go either way. Uh, there, there's some evidence of something like that in Jerusalem. But again, scholars are, are you know, divided over specifically what this is talking about. But the fact that it says that the synagogue, and, and, and even the way Luke phrases this is somewhat nebulous in the Greek text. Is this one synagogue or a couple of synagogues? And, and it really doesn't matter ultimately. But what this means is, is that these synagogues that are made up primarily of Greek speaking Jews, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, Cilicia, Asia, um, you know, this, this has taken place among that Greek-speaking uh, audience of Jews. And, of course, Stephen is one of them, uh, apparently, from what we just read earlier. 6.11. Now, they persuaded some men to say, uh, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And so they came, dragged him off, and took him into the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Um, now, I don't know. Last time I checked, y'all can, can go look this up and make sure that I'm not out in left field here. But here they are. What are they accusing Stephen of? They're saying that he's speaking blasphemous words against the holy place and against the law. Right? In other words, he's not doing what the law commands. I'm not sure. I think the last time I checked, in the Ten Commandments, there's a commandment that says, thou shalt not bear false witness. In other words, thou shalt not lie against your fellow brothers. And what are they doing? They're gathering false witnesses up to lie against Stephen. And they're lying about, he's telling us to break the law. Do you follow the insanity in this whole thing? Right? I was I was just listening I was just listening to a podcast on the way over here and the, and uh, although this was the podcast was talking about uh, a very different topic our archaeology and the scientific pursuits within the field of archaeology and this guy was talking about one of the one of the the greatest hindrances to us actually learning what we should learn is tradition that sets a narrative that is not true and we just have to reinforce it because it's the tradition Right? And that's what they're doing here. He's speaking against our tradition. We don't like it. And so we're going to shut him up. And well, how should we do it? Well, let's, let's lie and tell him that, <laughs> tell the leaders that he's trying to get us to break the law. Well, you're already doing it on your own. I need, you, know, you don't need any help from Stephen. Yeah, and it's it, taken completely out of whack, right? Uh, 6.14, for we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. There it is, right? Um, and and uh, he, he, Jesus did teach on uh, something that sounded like that. You remember he was talking cryptically in the last days of his life. He said, hey, listen, you destroy this temple and in three days God will raise it back up again. And he was talking about the temple of his body. But many of the Jews interpreted it to mean that he was going to tear down the temple itself. So Stephen is probably talking about something like that, but not literally tearing down the temple. 
6.15, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like that of an angel. And the, the idea, that, and y'all don't, you shouldn't think of the sappy Valentine's cards with angels and diapers and bows and arrows and rosy cheeks. An uh, 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 angel is a terrifying thing in the Bible. And an angel as a messenger of the Lord often shows up in glory and power, right? You don't have to think too far back. Think about in Luke, when Gabriel shows up uh, to Zechariah in the temple and Zechariah is terrified, you know? Uh, so the, the, the idea here is, is that um, uh, Stephen looks like an angel who's been in the presence of God. And we're going to see this a little bit later, right? He's somebody who the glory of God is exuding from, right? There's some evidence that, okay, something different is going on here, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll see that connected to something in his sermon, at the end of his sermon, that's really, really powerful. Uh, now, y'all, we're right at time. That's a great place to stop because uh, chapter 7 is um, Stephen's sermon speech to the Sanhedrin. It's all of chapter 7. Y'all read that for next week. This is one of the, I mean, all these sermons that we have are fantastic. This one is, is unbelievable. Stephen just simply goes through the Old Testament and he makes the case that, hey, y'all, this is really not about me. This is about y'all. Because just like your forefathers, any opportunity you can get, you kill God's prophets and you don't listen to him, and that's why you're going to bring destruction down on your heads, right? You're just like all your fathers who've come before you. So read through that sermon, and we're going to read through it next week, make some comments. Again, there's not a lot in that sermon that's difficult to understand, but he makes some really, really significant points. And uh, that, that sermon and what happens to Stephen at the end of it when they kill him opens us up to what happens in chapter 8, when the church is scattered and now they're going to head out of Jerusalem and start to, you know, head toward the remotest parts of the earth in exactly the way Jesus had said they would do. So really, really critical turning point. All right, y'all. Uh, good. Uh, that's a great that we actually got to where I was hoping we'd get to today. That's that's unheard of. Y'all mark this day down. That never that never happens. All right, y'all. Let me pray for us and we'll turn loose and uh, look forward to seeing y'all next week. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and carry us along. And uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us to dwell within us, to guide us and direct us, to open our eyes and our hearts to the truth so that we can not only understand these things that you have given to us, but so that we can welcome them within us, welcome them within our uh, mental framework to shape the way we think about the world and ourselves and you and all that you've done. And so, Father, help us in all the ways that we need help because we, we needed all the help we can get. And uh, we put all these things before you and ask all these things for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen.